Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7, beginning verse 13, and we're going to be uh, reading down to verse 25. Romans chapter 7, beginning verse 13, and reading to verse 25. familiar book that I'm sure you all are well aware of, but um, probably many of you haven't read it. You've probably seen movies based on it, but it's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was written by Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, and the author had a, a long um, interest between the, the interplay between good and evil, and so that's what uh, precipitated him and compelled him to write this book about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and in the book, the main protagonist is Dr. Henry Jekyll, who spends his life trying to repress evil urges that are not fitting for a man of his stature. And so he develops a serum and attempts to suppress these hidden desires, but instead, the serum causes him to turn into a hideous creature named Edward Hyde, and he actually embraces this transformation to act out his evil desires while at the same time, trying to keep his status as Dr. Jekyll intact. I think that many of us might identify with that whole concept, especially the interplay between good and evil, especially within our, our own selves. On some days, we're Dr. Jekyll. On other days, that we're Mr. Hyde. I think it's one of the things that we find here in Romans chapter 7, this text that we're going to, to look at, that we're, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul takes a very personal interest in what he's writing here. As we noted last week that there is a change or there's a shift in the, in the pronouns that he uses, that he's no longer speaking in the third person or the second person, but beginning in chapter 7, he begins to talk in the I, speaking of himself. And so as we're going to move forward in this text, we're going to see how Paul continues the use of that I, and he speaks about this battle that rages in his own heart, in his own life, that even Paul had a Mr. Hyde in him, and he struggled to suppress it in a very great way. And so I want us just to, as we read through this text, I want you just to note the usage of the I, how personal it is, but also I want you to think about how this, um, this, this, this vulnerability uh, he really kind of opens himself up and we're able to see inside of him and see his own struggles. And I think that if we're being very honest, that we will also identify with the same struggles that he had. This, this interplay between the need to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to live out our identity as being righteous, but also realizing that we are still in this sinful body. And there is a struggle every day of our life to root out sin and to live a life that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice with me, beginning in verse 13 of Romans chapter 7, here's what the word of our God says. It says, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that the sin through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sowed under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. 
For what I will to do that I do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to encounter you this morning in the context of your word, and I pray that you will be present and that you will speak to us through your word and that you will align our hearts with your word by the working of your Holy Spirit. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we begin looking at this text, you will notice that there's something that's been coming up regularly and that's a rhetorical question that's being asked. So as he's making this argument, he sees that the argument that he makes may actually undo something, and so that he seeks to be clear with what he's saying. And so he does that as we look at verse 13, as he has done in various places throughout um, you know, Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, uh, chapter 6 and verse 15, chapter 7 and verse 7, where he asked this question, and this is a different question that he asked in verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? And the reference to that is, is the law. Because if you remember back in verse 12, he talks about the law is holy, it is just, and it is good. So that what is good to me, has it become death to me? So that's the question that he asks. Is the law bringing death to me? And to that question, he answers with the same strong emphasis, a strong emphatic no that he has in the previous way, no. That which is good, the law, is not responsible for death. Now, as this, this question that's being asked about the law is a, different than the one in verse 7, which asks if the law is sin. Here he asks if the law is death. So since the question is framed as describing the law as good, did God, did God make a mistake of giving the law since the results are so disastrous? So that's kind of the, the way that he's asking this question. That maybe the law was intended to be good, but God made a mistake with that, and consequently it brings death. So if the law is not sin, but uses sin as a base of operation to cause more sin, and if the law was to bring life, but because of all sin it brings death, does God have buyer's remorse in giving the law? And to this question, Paul answers with a no. So you know, at least two times that we've seen here in Romans chapter 7 that he's not 
um, you know, putting down the law, he's actually showing that the law actually is good. It actually has an important purpose. Now, the problem with the law and, in, and the way that he talks about it negatively, both in Romans and in the book of Galatians, has to do with how people are using the law as a bridge for salvation, or as a checklist. They are, I did this, okay, I'm good, I did this, now I'm okay. So that's, that's what Paul is pushing against. So whenever he talks about the law negatively, that's what we have to keep in mind, people using the law to make themselves right before God. Because his point is, is that you cannot keep the law. The law shows you the reality of your sin, points out your sin, and there's only one person that's fulfilled the law, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he lived perfectly for us. He lived sinlessly for us so that we could be justified, so that we could be made righteous. And so one of the things that we see in verse 13 is he gives us an insight onto, you know, what the purpose of the law is. And that is so that sin might be seen for what it is. Without the law, we would not recognize sin at its deepest evil. We would not see it as rebellion against the command of God. Sin is so destructive that it takes good things that brings life and uses it to bring death. Now, most likely what Paul has in mind about how the law reveals sin for what it is, he still has coveting in view. So if you remember from last week that he took the sin of coveting and showed the purpose of the law in revealing that. Now, and the reason that coveting is so important is because without the law, we would really be unable to see how destructive and how sinful it really is. It's not like other sins that's listed in the Ten Commandments. Murder, stealing, lying, adultery. We see how all these things are destructive. They, they cause havoc wherever they are, wherever they're committed. These sins cause a disaster. But with something like coveting that is an inward desire, we're actually unable to see how destructive it really is. And so that's one of the things that the law does and why it's so important is because it shows us what we cannot see. It shows us the sin that's within us that we're unable, we're unable to see that we really have a serious problem with it. And so that's, that's kind of the point that Paul is getting at in verse 13 when he says, but sin that it might appear sin. And so the law shines a spotlight, if you will, on that hidden sin in our life so that we can see it really is sin. I mean, it's easy for us to sometimes rationalize those kinds of sins that are in our hearts and in our minds, especially a sin like coveting. We may say, oh, everybody kind of has these desires. Well, just because everybody has these desires doesn't mean it's actually right. And so the law pinpoints it. It shows it to us. It shows how terrible it is and, and how difficult it is and how destructive and how it can ruin our life. So the lie, so the law shines a light on this hidden sin, pulls back the veneer of self-righteousness, and exposes it for what it really is. In fact, this is one of the things, as we talked about last week, that Jesus did in order for the Pharisees to see their own problem. They, they believed that they were keeping the commandments. But then he said, you have heard it said from the oath, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, 
If you look on a woman and you lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. In other words, if you covet it, if you desire this woman who doesn't belong to you in that kind of way. Jesus did the same thing for the rich young ruler when he told him, you know, you keep the commandments. And what did that rich young ruler say? I've kept them all. And then Jesus says, go sell everything and follow me. And so he pinpointed his desire. That was his, his problem. And so in the same way, that's what the law does. It shines a light into those sins that we cannot see other laws. And so the good law does not cause death. Sin does. That's the point of verse 13. And then if we move on to verse, verses 14 through 17, he makes the statement that the law is spiritual. And while he's making that statement, the law is spiritual, he goes on to say, I'm not spiritual. I'm not spiritual. So he gives another positive description that is added to the law in verse 14. So we've already seen how it's holy, good, and just. Now in verse 14, we see that he gives a description as it's spiritual. So, and Paul does this by appealing to common knowledge shared with the congregation for this truth. If you notice, they say he says, for we know. So this is truth that these Christians should know. Possibly because they were acquainted with the Old Testament. Also, they were acquainted with the gospel teaching. I think it's similar that all of us should think about the law of God. And if I make this statement that it's spiritual, we should know this. It comes from God. God gave the law, so it has to be good. It has to be just. It has to be holy. And it has to be spiritual. So to say that the, the law is spiritual is to characterize it as highly desirable, but more importantly, I think the emphasis here in this text is that it has its origin with the Holy Spirit of God. The law did not come from man, it came from God, and that is why. It is just, it is holy, it is good, and it is also spiritual. Now, if you'll notice that the law is contrasted with human nature. If you look there in verse 14, it says, The law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Or maybe I am unspiritual, or maybe some of you actually have the translation, I am fleshly, or of the flesh, or something of that nature. And that's, that's the emphasis here in this text. It's the opposite of being spiritual. It's, it's being carnal. It's being unspiritual, mainly with the emphasis on our flesh, our Adamic nature, who we are in Adam. So if you remember back in Romans chapter 5, we're either part of two different hum- humanities. We're either part of Adam, the first Adam, which brings sin and death, or we're part of the second Adam, which brings life and it brings righteousness. And the fleshly nature is further described as sold under sin. Now, now notice how Paul is closely identifying with this fleshly carnal nature. He uses the eye as he did in the previous verses, and he does so in the following verses. Paul, in his converted state, makes the statement, I am carnal. I am unspiritual. I am in the flesh. Now, I think this might bring somewhat of a problem since he has said that believers are not slaves to sin back in Romans chapter 6. But what we need to do is look closely at this verse because he doesn't make that statement. He doesn't say that he's a slave to sin. In fact, what he says here is specific. 
I am carnal, sold under sin. So he does not say that he's a slave to sin. This is not his identity. He does say that he is fleshly and he's sold under sin, which speaks to the capacity to sin. Now, according to Romans chapter 6, we have freedom from sin because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our true identity. This is our true reality. Spiritually speaking, we have died to sin and been raised to walk in the newness of life. Yet at the same time, our bodies don't share with Christ's risen life, does it? We know through salvation, through conversion, through the the work of the Holy Spirit, through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, how he has saved us and through his resurrection, that he has removed sin from us. But we still live in this body. It's still, this body is still decaying. We still live in this fleshly, carnal world. And so the reality of sin is still pervasive and still a very powerful influence in our life. So back in Romans chapter 6 where he says we're no longer slaves to sin, that, that's no longer a ruling power to us. We're free from sin. But at the same time, we still struggle with sin. We are still sold, understand, and our body waits for its full redemption at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, then, then all of sin is going to be completely rooted out of us. That This body is going to be changed completely and transformed for the glory of God. So as Christians, we live in what is called the overlapping of the ages. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, and he started his ministry, he began to usher in the new age that was called the kingdom of God. And then he solidified that through his death and his resurrection. So the kingdom of God is here. It is present. And as Christians, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are a part of that kingdom, and that kingdom is ruled by Christ and him alone. But while we are in this kingdom of God, it is a spiritual kingdom. And at the same time, we are living in this present evil age. And so that's what I mean where there's this overlapping of the ages. And really what that speaks to is the tension between what's called the already, but the not yet. Christ has redeemed us already, but not yet. And but what I mean by the not yet is, is that our full redemption that relates to our bodies and the removal of sin and death, that it, it's, it's waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there, there is this tension that we, that we live in because we are, we are part of the kingdom of God, but as we live in this kingdom of God, we're still living in this sinful world and we still have these struggles with sin. And so as the text moves forward, beginning in verse 15, you can actually feel the tension in Paul's words. Like you feel it in several of these verses. If you'll notice in verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. There's the tension. Paul wants to go one direction of his life, but instead of going that direction, he's going a different way. He wants to practice this way, but instead he's doing what he he doesn't want to practice. 
And so the tension is, is really in this text. It's just there in verse 16, and it goes on in verse 17. He, he wants to do good, but he can't. He practices the very thing that he hates. Paul lives in the age to come, characterized by holiness and life. But at the same time, there is the ever-present and very powerful pull of this present evil age that's characterized by sin and death. And unfortunately, in his body, Paul, as we do as well, often find ourselves living and behaving in ways that characterize this present evil age instead of characterizing the age to come, the kingdom of God. Now, I think it's important to remember in this text that as we as we keep moving forward, that Paul's not using this as an excuse for his sins. There's no excuse here. It's really a confession. It's something that he hates. He doesn't just throw up his arms and say, well, I mean, there's this tension. I'm going to sin, so let's just do it. That's not the passion here. That's not what he's saying he's not making excuse he's actually showing us how much he hates his sin and how he wishes he wouldn't sin and he's also showing us how vigilant he's fighting every day to practice what he knows he needs to practice to do what he needs to do and when he does sin he doesn't make excuses for it in fact i I think we, we could read this as somewhat of a confession showing his vulnerability showing his humility really showing his need for God and for God's help in in all that that he's doing. And so I think it's really important for us as we read this, I'm going to say this several times throughout here, because I unfortunately I think that's sometimes how we live as Christians, that we know that we're going to sin, and we just make excuses for it. Nobody's perfect. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'm going to give you a gold star. But we, we know that we're not perfect, That's what we're pressing forward, right? We're pressing forward the upward calling of Christ Jesus. You know, Paul makes that statement in Philippians 3. I I know that I've not already attained. I know that I'm not perfect, but I'm pressing forward that. And so in no way, no sense does Paul make excuses for his sins. Instead, he wants to fight his sin and he hates his sin. He wants to root his sin out. He wants to kill his sin. I think that's the same kind of of passion that we should have. So if anything, this text reminds us to hate our sin and to fight tooth and nail against it. Now, notice a few phrases phrases that emphasize Paul's identity against the reality of sin in his body. In verse 17, he states that what he is doing, that he's doing what he does not understand. As Christians, we have this new identity and new life in the Lord Jesus, and we are incredulous at the reality of sin in our life. That I do what I do not understand. This is, this is not who I am. This is not what I want to do. This is not how I want to live. And he also says in verse 15 that what he wills to do, or what he desires, he fails at. So at least at this point, he's telling us that he has these, these desires, these new desires that, that's come as a consequence of Christ. That he wants to live opposite. Of sin. He wants to live in a way that's antithetical to sin. There is further confirmation given in verse 15 that the law is indeed good and that Paul is not against the law. He does the very thing that he does not wish to do, which is against God's will. In other words, his desire, what he wills to do that we see in verse 15, is to live in accordance with God's revealed law. 
But instead, he does the opposite. He portrays sin as an alien invader in verse 17. Sin is not an invited guest. In fact, Paul would like nothing more than to see it completely removed from his body. Sin pulls the strings of our body like a puppeteer to think and act contrary to God's will in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, again, Paul is not excusing his responsibility in regard to sin. He is still culpable. And we should understand this as a confession of his need for help. This is humility. This is an acknowledgement of his sin before God. And not only is it an acknowledgement of his sin before God, but it's also an acknowledgement of his sin before this congregation, these people. Which I think points to another thing that we need to think about in how we fight sin. It's not only through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also fight our sin by confessing it to one another, saying, hey, I, I have this problem in my life, and I want you to pray with me about this. I want you to help keep me accountable before this. These, these are people that Paul, some of these people he, don't even, he doesn't even know. And yet, he's, he's an open book before them and saying, this, this is my problem. This is the problem with sin. And so what we, we learn, at least from these verses, is that the law is spiritual, but we are not. We are not spiritual. We, we are not spiritual in the sense that we have fully arrived. We are still in this flesh. We still have this struggle, and we still have this fight that we need to keep waging against sin all of our life. As we move on to verses 18 through 20, we actually see that they parallel verses 14 through 17. So I'm not going to comment on all of these verses since they really parallel and basically give the, uh, the, the idea that as Christians we desire to do good, but we lack the ability. We desire to do good, but we lack the ability. So the focus is on the inability to keep God's law. And the reason is that nothing good dwells in the flesh to carry out the law. Even though the desire is there, instead, Paul doesn't practice the good he desires to accomplish, but the sin he doesn't desire. And what is the problem? We find in verse 20 that the problem is indwelling sin in the body is the problem. So if you'll notice there in verse 20, he says, Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he really puts the spotlight on what the real problem is. It is that sin that dwells in me. It is that sin in, in which I struggle with that dwells in me. So he has this desire to do good, if, as we see in this text, but he has the, he's, he's unable to because he's still in that fleshly body. And then the last section of this text in verses 21 through 25, it, it actually it ends on somewhat of a resounding note, a hopeful note. Because if you look in verse 25, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the answer to the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so the answer, Christ will deliver me from the body of death. Now, before we actually get to verse 25, it, it, it leads up to it. And so the final section in verses 21 through 25 describes the war between good and evil in Paul and us. 
As a way of summary, there is a reference to a certain law or principle. So if you look there in verse 21, he says, I find then a law that is evil and present within me, the one who wills to do good. Now, it's extremely confusing here because he uses this word law and he's been using it a different way throughout the book. So here in verse 21, he's not talking about the Mosaic law. Right, so we've already discovered that the law of God, the Mosaic law, it's good, it's holy, it's just, it's spiritual. And in verse 21, he says, I find then a law that is, that is evil present within me. So he's not characterizing the Mosaic law as, a legal, as an evil that's present within him. If you look in verse 23, he says, but I see another law in my members, Warring against the law of my mind. So he's actually pitting these two laws against one another. So the law in his mind, he says, I, I want to live in accordance to God's revealed will. But warring against that is, this, is another law. And so some translations actually doesn't, don't translate it law, but they translate it as principle. And so this reference to the law in verse 21 and verse 23 does not refer to Mosaic law but another law that operates inside a person. It is the principle or the law that states this. When I want to do what is good, evil is right there with me. That's the principle, or that's the law that's operating within Paul. And deep down in the core of Paul, he delights in the law of God. If you'll notice there in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. In fact, we, we actually find that this is similar to Psalm 1 and verse 2, which describes the blessed man as one who de, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And why should we delight in the law of the Lord? Well, it was given by God himself. It is holy. It is good. It is just. It is spiritual. However, there is another law waging war. And notice that it wages a, a war against the law of the mind. And this this parallels the law that Paul delights in, his inner being in verse 22. So Paul delights in his inner being, in the law of God. This law is in his mind. It's, it's his worldview. It's, it, it shapes how he thinks about all of these things. But warring against it is a, another law. And this law eventually leads to becoming a POW. A prisoner of war. If you'll notice, that's, that's the, the idea that's communicated here in verse 23, that this law brings me into that captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, which is in my body. Now, this appears, as we're reading through this text, this appears to be a very hopeless situation. But it only describes some of the story of the Christian life, not the whole story. Now, this is not a picture of what our life looks like every day. But it is a picture of what our life looks like sometimes. Now, and really what I think that Paul's really getting at here is I think he still has the sin of coveting in view. That's the sin that he, uh, he lists there in the preceding text and how the law shines a light into this sin. Um. I don't think it's really something that's just so apparent or so vulgar. 
I think this, these desires that he has within his heart, and he hates these desires, he hates these feelings of sin that's within him. And so he wants those all rooted out in his life. But I, I think it's important for us to remember that as we read Romans chapter 7, that this shouldn't be the story of our life every day. But this is the story of our life more times than we would like it to happen. And so there are days as, as Christians we hate ourselves and we loathe ourselves because of the sin. And the question that follows is filled with frustration, but at the same time actually may be rhetorical in light of verse 25. So if you'll notice that all of this leads to Paul in verse 24 to cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am. He's loathing himself. He hates himself for the sins that dwell within his body. Now, I really, I know that when we, we read this, that this is not something that we want to feel like all the time. But I really think this is helpful and healthy for Christians to feel this way at times in their life. I, I would be really scared if somebody who was a Christian, they, they don't feel conviction. If you don't have conviction, then that might mean that the Holy Spirit's not working in you. And, you know, if, if, you, if you struggle with sin and, and, and it, it weighs on your mind and weighs on your heart and even, it, and even the sin may needle with your assurance, I actually think that's a good thing. That's a sign that God the Holy Spirit is working in your life. He's convicting you. He's molding you. He's shaping you. And he's pointing you outside of those sins. So as Christians, whenever we... We face sin and we struggle with sin and we, we do sin. I think one of the mechanisms that ought to be present is the fact that we're convicted for this. And we're not just accepting that this is who I am. I've struggled with this for you know, 20 years, 25 years, 40 years. There's nothing I can do about it. And so we just move from that. So I think it's actually helpful for us at times to have these kinds of frustrations. And the reason that it's helpful because it reminds us we don't belong in this world. This, this present evil world that's characterized by sin, this body that, that has sin in it, we don't belong there. We belong somewhere else. We're, we're pilgrims just passing through this world. Our, our identity, our address is in a totally different place than here in this world. So I, I, think, I think there's a healthy balance here. Because I don't want people to fall into despair because of their sins. I want them to lift their eyes up and, and to have the hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he gives us. And that how it is Jesus' righteous life that is our standing before God. Not our own standing. But at the same time, I, I really want us to be frustrated. And I, I think frustration is part of being a Christian. You, you know, when you... One of the things, too, this is, I'm kind of chasing a little bit of a rabbit here. Um, but, you know, we're just a little bit too comfortable with things in our society. The things that we watch, the things that we listen to, the things that are actually going on in our world. And I want us to be a little bit more uncomfortable. Right? I want us to be a little bit more picky and choosy about the kind of shows that we watch, the kinds of things that we feed into our, our heart and mind, because... You know, when, when we allow sin to enter into us in that kind of way and, and it's so casual, then it just 
it, it produces calluses on us. And we really need to be more sensitive to these, to these issues in our lives. And so th- this is Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am. And I felt that way at times in my life. Um, more often than I'd like to admit. I'm sure that you have as a Christian. You just feel the sin that you struggle with. Oh, wretched man that I am. I loathe this. I hate this. This is, this is so awful. I want this removed from my heart. And that's, that's what Paul is doing. And he's showing us who he is, this vulnerability. Now, you know, he makes the statement, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I think that's a rhetorical question because the answer is, I thank God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who will deliver us from this wretched body of death. The only escape from the frustration of continued failure, is the complete redemption of our bodies. And Paul is expressing the same groanings that the inanimate creative order expresses in Romans chapter 8, and we express as well as we eagerly wait for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies in chapter 8 and verse 23. So in the, in the midst of such war, anguish and frustration comes a thanksgiving. A thanksgiving. He, he's, he's frustrated with himself, but he gives thanks to God. He gives thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to one day deliver him from this sin. So the only solution to spiritual defeat and the only solution to this sin problem is to acknowledge and depend completely on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So in the heat of the battle, we give ourselves more to the Lord Jesus. We give more attention to him. In times of struggle with sin, it is more about Jesus, not less about Jesus. We give ourselves more. And, and then if you'll note, this is typical of Paul. You know, we think he's going to end on a hopeful note, and that's where we want. But as he gives this thanks to God, then the last part of it, so then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. I, I wish Paul would have just ended with, I thank God. But instead, he acknowledges the reality, because Paul is a realist. I mean, he, he's full of optimism, but he's also a realist. He's realistic to the fact that we will struggle with sin, and he reminds us and really sums up the attention of living for the Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time struggling with the sin. So there is this necessary self-awareness in this text. If you don't know the problem that you have, you're going to get sucked into defeat. And so that's Paul is acknowledging that he has a problem with sin. And he's just saying, this, this is the reality. Be ready of this. Be aware of this. This is the problem. Now, just very quickly, there's a few things that I want to just say as it relates to this text. Um, again, I want to emphasize this because I think this is important for us. No excuses in this text. There's no excuses. Sin is, and the struggle with sin is not taken lightly. Paul does not take this lightly. There is a danger of underestimating the power and the struggle of sin. I think the worst thing that we can say in our Christian life about any type of sin or any type of failure, when we look at somebody else, And we say, that will never happen to me. You are underestimating the power of sin. 
And the, the minute that you do that, you are leaving an opening for the enemy because you're prideful and you're not being on guard for the devil. Instead of what we ought to be saying when we see people fall into sin is we ought to be praying for those people, but also we ought to be giving thanks to God that it doesn't happen to me because it easily could be me. So we're recognizing our vulnerability. The other thing, I want us to, as we read this, this, this reads like a confession. Paul's vulnerability is on display. It's confession, and he's acknowledging sin. And what this tells us is do not become hardened to sin. Do not just shrug your shoulders and say nobody is perfect. We're all going to sin but live each and every day of your life with a reservation that you will not sin. Fight every day. Listen, put on your war clothes. One of the things we're going to see in Romans chapter 13, Paul tells the Christians, get out of your pajamas and put on your war clothes. And I think that too many Christians are living with a sense of apathy, lethargy, and not an awareness of the reality of sin. Do not ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Be sensitive to that and pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you and that he will lead you away from sin and that when you do sin, that the Spirit of God will bring an awareness to it. Be sensitive to your sins. Also, and I know this is extremely difficult, and you have to take this sometimes with a grain of salt, but I think we also should be sensitive to the fact that when people point out our sin, whether they're doing it in a judgmental spirit or they're doing it in a very compassionate way. Because if somebody's being judgmental about it, they may actually be right. So they may be wrong in the spirit in which they presented it, but at the same time, there may be some truth to it. So you need to be self-aware. You need to be self-conscious and self-reflective of the reality of sin in in your life. So don't ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And don't ignore the uh, people in your life. Be transparent about your sin. Here's another thing. It's a question. Why does God allow us to live with such sin after our salvation? Wouldn't it be better that after we were saved that he just completely rooted out our sin and we could live perfectly for him? I mean, that's what I would look. That's what I would do. Okay? but I'm not in charge. Uh, But maybe the reason this is, is so we can see how great our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is. Maybe the reason that we still struggle with this sin is because it continues to point us to Jesus, who is our only hope and our only Savior. It causes us to fall completely at his feet in dependence and knowing, I I can't do this. This This is more than me. I need you. Lord Jesus, I need you more, and I need your Holy Spirit in our lives. So maybe it is so that we can see how great our Savior, the Lord Jesus, is. And if that's the case, I think that tells us to give more of ourselves to Jesus every day and less to sin and less to things that will bring the desire of sin in our uh, our life. And this is the last thing. Romans 7 is only part of the story of the Christian life. It's not the whole story, and it shouldn't be the whole story for your life. There is victory in your sins. There is victory in your struggle, in your temptation, 
The Lord Jesus can bring you out of those sins. Whatever the addiction may be, whatever the sin may be, whatever you struggle it is, by God's grace, through the Lord Jesus Christ, he can root that out of your life. So Romans 7 is only part of the story for Romans 8 follows. Romans 8 is a great chapter, and let me just read this, these two verses, because we need to keep this in context with Romans 7. In Romans 8 and verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a totally different tone, isn't it? From verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, in chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This is our identity. There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. For the spirit has made us free from the law of sin and death. Let's pray together.